Junior. There any flies on you, they're paying fucking rent. You are listening to Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos and all things that flow from it all over again. I'm Vic Singh, coming at you on all your favorite podcast places and YouTube. Slowly but surely, figuring out all the multimedias. Fucking internet. On today's agenda, Pax Soprano, breaking down the 27 key scene blocks with a particular emphasis on the writing. We'll explore Tony's hard-on for Melfi and how it finally manifests itself, how to reveal a character's true feelings about someone or something, going through other people to achieve your ends, back-channeling, among other things. So, let's go. The fade-in on Vin McKazian, how what you choose to show first sets the tone for the entire hour. The sounds of ambient construction gnawing on his brain, deepening those grooves, those furrows on his forehead. Glabular lines. What? As you get older, these are topics of discussion. The precursor to those Botox brochures. Or dermatologist influencer IG ads popping up every which way. Gotta wonder, if you're a derm and you're doing ads... Is business really that good? Especially since now I'm hearing primary care docs are doing injections of their own, cutting out the middleman instead of referring it up the food chain. I mean, something, anything should trickle down over here, no? We can see that he's pouring over box scores and betting lines when Tony pulls up. Once a degenerate gambler, always a degenerate gambler. The sieve of possibility and reliance on hope to get out of a jam to get rescued, only to do it all over again when it doesn't. It's a certain kind of person with a certain kind of wiring. All this is to say these visual seeds Chase is planting early on in his arc provide so much more air, pun intended, to the eventual jump he takes off the bridge later. Their walk through the lumberyard McKazian's intel on Melfi's shopping habits, her preference for only the very best, most upscale delis. You know, the kind with the Italian name, but you can't find a fucking meatball in the whole joint? His depiction of it as a character flaw, though, is questionable. Seeking out the best, most authentic delis in whatever space you inhabit is essential. I'd even go so far as to say if you're not living within walking distance or a short distance from a credible, authentic deli, you're doing life wrong. Seriously, if I was running things over at Zillow or Redfin, I'd have a search feature for proximity to best unimpeachable Italian delis. Oricchio provolone hanging from the rafters. You feel me? You feel me? The pan to reveal them standing on the waterfront. The backdrop of the bridge. Did the love letter to bridges on the last iteration of the pod and I could just as easily do it again, but I'll spare you. Somewhat. The unassailable beauty of the grit and gray of spots like these. I'll never stop being transfixed by it. If you've listened this far, this long, you've no doubt heard me bloviate on and on about it. 
But I want to reflect for just a moment about the choices of these scenes. The art of supporting words on a page with visuals, with specific locations. How there's an actual meter and rhyme, even to that. The camera's dancing with them across these frames, swinging to the left, swaying to the right. Only thing missing from the scene is a dance partner. And maybe Sinatra's bobbles, bangles, and beads. Well, his version of it anyway. You can almost hear the stripes on Tony's shirt jing jingalinga ing as he leans in on Mackenzie. Go ahead, pause this and give it a look, and I'll buy you a cup of coffee if you don't hear it, too. And if any of you can go to this exact spot where they're standing now, today, I'd love to see what it looks like, how it's changed over time. I'll share the image with the rest of the pot of bingers, too. Vin gets paid for an honest day's work, honest in air quotes in case you're not watching this, from talking about Melfi to Melfi herself, her demeanor this episode. It's not flirty, but it's noticeably dialed up, like that woman at the end of Castaway. You can see the side-by-side here and later here. Feels like a note on the essence of what a lot of this episode is about. Tony coming clean about his hard-on for her with coffee. Coffee as a seduction tactic and out of a paper bag, no less. Hey, work for me. Cheap coffee and an offer to teach her chess is how I locked up a partner for life. And you know we cool because she lets me make dumb videos about a show that aired 20 fucking years ago. I did 20 fucking years. Jokes aside, you can tell a lot about a person by how they take their coffee. Do they interact with baristas dismissively? Do they say things like extra hot? Do they have over-the-top milk preferences or proportions? The answer is yes to any or all of these. Might be time to rethink things. Best part about coffee dates, though, they're an easy exit. You can turn a 463 double play like Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker rolled into one. Or the better, more recent reference for those of you that don't know your history. That was Feech talking, by the way. It's important these young guys know the history. The Mets, Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil. Her decision to not say anything about the coffee on the first infraction, but rather letting him delve into another day in the life episode of Provolone something. I think that's a reference to that ensemble drama, 30-something. In part because Tony's convinced Carmela's jealous of Melfi because she's a woman. Letting it slide is precisely what sets up their next encounter, creates a through line for all their encounters this episode. Her question about why a woman doctor tees up the writing to deliver a great line that accomplishes a couple three things. Reveals character, Tony's preferences, perspectives, sets up a plot point, Tony's desire to have an intimate relationship with Melfi, and makes us laugh how Tony went about making his choice, given the other options that were available. Kuzumano gave me a choice, which he two Jewish guys and a paisan like me. So I picked a paisan. The notion that every woman in his life is Italian, and that by selecting Melfi to talk to, 
He's merely dialoguing with them through her. Isn't a bad thing. She's not being critical, but rather pointing out an insightful therapeutic dynamic. Cultural understanding and shared experiences foster connection and better, more open, transparent communication. Less explanation and setup necessary. More substance. Note how he answers a question with a question, something he called her out on earlier. Always with the hypocrisy. He wants to know why she accepted him as a patient when most people wouldn't want anything to do with him. I wouldn't touch that thing with a ten-foot pole. Her non-answer is a matrix-level move. No answer serves the audience better. Let's the thought linger. Let's us fill in the blanks. Also, by putting the question out there, it offers some resolution or a path to it. Even if there isn't an answer yet, there's an alignment happening between the storyteller and the audience. He's saying, hey, I know you've been wondering about this, and now you know that the characters themselves are wondering about it too. And for now, at least, are as in the dark about it as you. The cut to a pile of cash on a card table could suggest one answer, a paying customer, which is certainly something service providers need to keep the lights on. It's that or chasing down insurance claims. The efficiencies have been booked to paying customers. More than But we've joked about that reason in the past. Looking at it through the lens of a writer now, there's a lot of reasons why she'd take the gig. None of which, by the way, need to be said or revealed by her. Her ulterior motives or hidden intentions are part of the dance. Why put a lid on the intrigue? That's what keeps audiences in it. There's her own intrigue for starters. How many people get to work with someone like that? Attempt to fix someone like that? There could even be some attraction as well, physically speaking, but also the dangerousness of it. Safe to say her patterns have become routine and predictable. Tony's a shot in the arm. I need more. I need more. What do you want me to do? And there's the academic aspect of it. The opportunity to turn a bad apple into a good one. Or an edible one, at the very least. I know there is good in you. The Emperor hasn't driven it from you fully. The pullback on the table over Willy Nilly by Rufus Thomas. There's a certain Elia Kazan-ness to it, as seen here in this shot from A Streetcar Named Desire. Originally a play written by Tennessee Moltisanti, I mean, Williams. All roads lead back to The Sopranos, right? Gandolfini and Aida Torturo performed it on Broadway in 1992. Of course, there's also the literalness of it. Cards on the table. Cards on the table time. All right. Cards on the table. Well, why don't we put our fucking cards on the table here? Now the cards are on the table. Let's put our cards on the table here. Lady, let's put our cards on the table. In an episode where Tony's going to put his cards on the table with respect to his feelings and his understanding of the extent of the bounds of the doctor-patient relationship. Then, we're back to the simple business of this thing of ours. Money goes up, shit goes down. And there's never enough of the former and always 
too much of the latter. And round and round we go. This time, Mikey comes round to collect and let everyone know Junior's not respecting old arrangements. The notion of new management, regimes, imposing their will on the way things used to be done. Goes as far back as when Moses wore short pants. That's been going on since Moses wore short pants. It's relatable. We've all been there, either in front of it or behind it. And that's why it's there, laid bare for us. We're like one of the guys at that card table, as opposed to mere bystanders on the other side of a tube. Next, we catch a glimpse of where at least some of the proceeds of that card game are going to finance Junior's new wardrobe. The Emperor's new clothes. Hans Christian Andersen over here, who, if I remember correctly, is passively referenced in Season 6, Episode 9, The Ride. He's getting fitted for some new suits. Out here looking prouder than Lydia Tarr, or Saul Bloom in Ocean's Eleven, or Prince Philip, played by Matt Smith in The Crown. Junior's like the league office during the Allen Iverson era, back when they wanted everybody suited up, coming in and out of games, instead of coming to work in jogging outfits, as Junior calls them here. These guys today, they want to be buried in a jogging outfit. The word choice, buried, though, is demonstrative of how the writing moves things along from one beat to another, synchronized swimmer-like. We learn that the tailor's grandson killed himself in a drug-related incident. Old man Capri very artfully secures his retribution through Junior, making him, of course, think it's his idea, as opposed to an outright ask and the trail of favors that usually follow them. These little individual capsules of respect for everybody in and around the game in this show is one of my favorite things, from tailors to butchers to chicken coop proprietors to bicheolos. My pizza never hurt nobody. Each carry with them their own air of sophistication and skill in navigating the waters in which they live and play. Everything fits like a skier's onesie. The cut from Junior's motherless fucks line to an equally amused and stoic Livia Soprano. What can you say but chef's kiss. The cut offers the suggestion that Tony's a motherless fuck himself, especially if she wants him dead, which, as we know, is an overarching theme of season one. Junior's complaining to her about the coffee, among other things. He says he's going to donate a magnet or stovetop espresso pot to, you know, class the place up a bit. New boss, new grievances. He's basically Nas in If I Ruled the World. Lauren Hill's first musical gig, by the way, outside of the Fugees. Imagine that. Between his complaints and smelling like a French bouton, that's French whore, the ease with which that rolls off her tongue, though, makes you think she's got to have experience with those smells making their way through Johnny Boy's laundry back in the day. Not exactly the kind of product placement Kanoe would have wanted, but an excellent insertion of a malaprop. After insulting him and taking it on the chin, by the way, but 
With nothing to offer other than his brother wore the same cologne, Livia offers her congratulations to Junior about becoming boss. The way the camera's on her, almost suggesting she's presiding over him. That she's the one in control. Chin on hand. That she's making a fist isn't lost on me. And it's tacit communication of aggression, violence, or threat, at least under some circumstances, contexts. The pace and musicality to her delivery more than suggests she's scheming, planting her flag in this new regime, playing on the only battlefield that really counts, that of hearts and minds. Certain people, the way that instantly puts targets on people's backs, the way it suggests she knows more than he does, the way it demonstrates her prowess as a de facto consigliere to anyone in this family who's got the top job, and her slightest missile of this very idea later this episode when Tony asks her to talk to Junior, R.E., the hashtags. Everything's in the way she moves her eyes up and down as she talks, never fully looking him directly in the eye. When it's understood Junior isn't seeing all the permutations like she is, she gets specific. How's your Jewish friend? Hesh, what about him? Who ever heard of a Jew riding horses? He owns a horse farm. Uh. The cobwebs are removed. Junior realizes he should tax him as a way to get back at Tony for sticking her in a nursing home. That ability to make the other person think it's their idea incepting, if you will, is something Livia has made a living transacting in. And in another life, she could have been a closer at an old school car dealership. I'll give you my card. I'll be here at 10 o'clock. Great. Okay, nice Good. to meet you. Great, right. nice meeting you. Oh. Speaking of cracking Calione, Tony can't get it up for Arena. Something's in the way other than his balls. Watch your balls. <laughs> Upon realization that their relationship is a very specific thing and no more, no less, that he needs spaces filled and she's a temporary filler, they fight. Structurally, the scene is selling the idea that Tony can't get Melfi out of his head. It's laying pipe, groundwork for their sessions this episode. At Satrial's, Christopher blazes through in his signature way to let Tony know Hesh needs to talk outside. The days when people showed up unannounced for impromptu confabs. Nowadays, things are texted and scheduled at least hours, if not days, ahead. You think Tony would be a fast texter? One thumb or two? Or would he talk text dictate into the mic? and curse at autocorrect like the rest of us. You saying there's something wrong with me? The question practically answers itself, right? Hey, I don't even let anybody wag their finger in my face. Hesh, of course, has come to complain about getting taxed. The momentum and pace of this is a little detail I love. We don't see or hear any of the interstitial stuff between Libya planting the idea and Hesh getting the news. 
We simply jump cut to a conversation between Hesh and Tony where Hesh expects Tony to make it right lest he take his Shylock business to another corner. Importantly, without saying the word expect, but rather with the Yiddish term of endearment. The choice to have an over-the-shoulder type shot in the backseat of Hesh's car to cover Tony's approach is something I haven't seen before or since. There's a shot in Breaking Bad where Walter's spying, but it's not the same idea as what's creatively being done here. Notice how the line by Mikey, old arrangements, has fully flowered here. First, Jimmy's game, now Hesh's action. Junior's tentacles getting closer and closer to Tony and his alliances, forcing his hand. From the walls closing in, reality of a 500k tax plus two points, to dreams, Tony and the Melfi conundrum, and how to convert what's professional into something personal. Scored by the Jive Five. Mad Men took this notion of blurred lines in professional situations and ran with it to another degree. This show feels like a blueprint to that and how prior eras could take things even further than what we got here. Notice how Tony's sheets change color from light to dark and the certain obvious dualistic symbolism that presents. Dualistic. That could be an album title for Dua Lipa's next project. Then there's the compositing of the women in his life. Melfi's face with Arena's voice, this dream amalgamation. Next, we meet Johnny Sack for the first time, the king of New York. Love how he's introduced. Nothing formal, exposition-y, just straight business. If you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Straight cash, homie. <laughs> how his heft and prominence and importance to the series is conveyed in one frame and one simple line. So, what do you want New York to do? What do you want New York to do? How that alone tells us everything we need to know about him. He speaks for the five families, or at the very least, one of them, that Tony is lower than him on the pecking order, to quote Arena. Johnny Sack's posture versus Tony's here drives that point right home. That virtually every scene he's in will contain a cigarette. The smoke in his opening frame might as well be a third character in this two-shot. And the choice to have him speak sparingly calmly, suggests his formidableness going forward. That there's a lot of there there, and we're going to peel away at it one layer at a time across the series. Subtle, but note the positioning of the chandelier directly above his head, whereas the one above Tony is askew, off and to the left. It's nothing but also everything at the same time. Everything is everything. Tony's all hands on deck with this hash thing. Needs a coalition of the willing 
to push this through. Who did what? The reveal that Carmela's waiting in the back for what was supposed to be a romantic dinner between just the two of them, mixing business with pleasure, a visual display of towing that moving target of a line between one family and the other. That shot of Carmela waiting, people sitting alone at tables waiting. Jersey Trella and Ida. That's Jersey with a Z, by the way. Ryan Gosling in Drive. Michael Christopher in Mr. Robot. Bill Hader in Barry. January Jones in Mad Men. All the time, by the way. Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. I could keep going, but at this point, it sounds like I'm naming off nominees for the Best Badass at the Table by Themselves Award. And the Oscar goes to... What this distance between Tony and Carmela is doing is setting up their coalescence later in the episode. Remember, every setup has a payoff. And as a matter of good practice, to remind myself, at the very least, the key aspects of narrative structure, setups in particular, there's Chekhov's gun, the idea that if you introduce something, it has to serve a purpose downstream. There's narrative economy, the idea that every element should contribute to character development, plot progression, or thematic exploration. If it's not doing one or all of those three, it's probably best to strike it from the draft. There's engagement and satisfaction. The idea that when audiences like you and me notice setups or foreshadowing and their corresponding payoffs, there's an enhanced engagement with the material. We're active as opposed to passive participants. The car pulls up into the garage. The crux of the conflict rears its head, as they tend to do inside of a car, especially on those drives home from wherever. There's always unfinished business before going into the house, putting on a front to the rest of the family. Not only have a lot of us lived versions of that, but we've seen it across TV and film too. It's all over Breaking Bad, for example, between Walter and Skyler, and eventually the unraveling of it all with Hank. Cars in garages and conflict inside them is a bit of a recurring soprano theme too. There's even a climactic scene of one in Many Saints. Carmela's beef is she feels like Tony's chattel, a mere conduit for procreation. Quite frankly, she wants her knight in white satin armor too. An important point to articulate writing-wise. Every woman in his life in his own head anyways, is dependent on him. And that dependence is what gets him running toward independent women, or certainly at least women who front independence. Melfi, Valentina, Gloria, Juliana Skiff. From conflict to therapy, about as rights itself as it gets. That's the payoff for having such an elegant device scaffolding the entire series. It's a home base. I always reach home base. This time around, Melfi shuts down the coffee. And in a way, almost it pushes Tony to reveal his true feelings for her. 
rather than plodding along, beating around the bush. But importantly, she's already prefaced that encounter with her response here. It's not appropriate. If coffee isn't kosher, neither then is an intimate relationship. In many instances, I believe it's career-ending for someone in her position. Complete career suicide. She takes that call about her car, planting, of course, an idea in Tony's head to get it handled for her as an overture. There's ways to make gestures like that and delight people, and there's ways to do it that would scare the shit out of someone. The choice for Tony was obvious. If there ever was a listicle for what not to do to impress a woman or person you're trying to lay the Mac down on or impress, stealing their car off their private property would probably be at the top of that list. And jumping ahead in the episode a little here, telling them to dress more like a woman boss, probably safely in the top quartile of things not to do. Don't get smart with me. It's one of the few scenes in her office where the camera moves, by the way. Also, it's interesting how she communicates with the mechanic, the tone, and almost hastiness for wanting a diagnosis. Answers. Can't help but see that's exactly how some of her patients confront her. The instant gratification gene most of us have to learn to curb or suppress over time lest we live a life filled with disappointment. After making her laugh while trying to explain why he wants off the meds, and what's almost an out-of-body experience, they determine that what's ailing him isn't physical. The silence off that word does serious work. She, knowingly or not, has boxed him into a corner where he's going to have to come clean to her about his feelings. But all good things come in threes, right? We'll have to wait for next session to reveal that. I skipped the preambles. Meanwhile, back over at the sausage factory, Carmela cleaned out a Roche-Bobois distribution center. Probably safe to assume their signature Mahjong sofa didn't get Carmela's seal of approval. The notion of buying furniture as a coping mechanism, retail therapy generally, as a way to temporarily alleviate dissatisfaction. Inanimate objects to take the place of the animate object she wants. At Satrial's, there's a sit-down over the hashtags. Before examining, the combination of Johnny Sack's shirt, Hesh's shirt, and the gingham tablecloth. There's pushing the bounds of color theory on what colors may not traditionally be considered harmonious. And then there's this. It's Chase's riff on a Kandinsky painting, say, Composition 7, a painting understood to be a composite of the Resurrection, Judgment Day, and the Garden of Eden. There's that number three. And when you look at that scene through that lens, it kind of fits like a glove. Johnny Sack's arrival in Jersey is a resurrection of sorts. It's Judgment Day for Hesh and his tax, and we're in the Garden State. Tony and Johnny Sack run the bit they must have 
practice on the way in, Steve Martin and Martin Short over here, or precursors to Key and Peele, or Jermaine Clement and Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords. That was a fun show. Pulling a spoof of Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls like that, and making it instantly memorable? Those fucking lyrics? Auto-tune before the Antares plug-in even properly existed? Whoever greenlit that show had brass balls and impeccable taste. The conceit of dispensing life lessons through the whimsy of song? My highest compliments still to this day. Takes brass balls to sell real estate. They make Junior feel warm at the seat of power. The illusion of control. The illusion of respect, too, by the way. Those who want respect, give respect. Continuing the great setup of making Junior the last to know what's going on, all while thinking everything is happening per his master plan. The visual evidence of that always exaggerated with a prop. Here, a glass of water. Other times, him eating olives or figs or whatever the fuck on their version of a Zoom call over the Johnny Sack, Jenny Sack mole debacle. My nephew's right. Hesh, too, reveals he's in on the bit. Says that he never went to Tony after talking to Junior. Kramer to their Jerry and George, if you will. Chris Bosch to their LeBron and D. Wade. Draymond to their Curry and Clay. All right. Got it out of my system. How would that look, he explains. The cut to Junior sipping his glass of water is masterful. Then the eye contact between Hash Tony and Johnny Sack, indicating they're homing in on the bogey. Everything resides in what's unsaid. Like... Carly Simon or that chick karaokeing her in Lost in Translation. No show conveys that better than this one. Their collective respect goes a long way. Cuts Hesh's bill by 50%. A lot of money in his shit. Oh yeah? Tony also grins as big as Melfi did the previous scene, by the way. Toothy symmetry. Now, question. Tony and Johnny Sack effectively put money back in Heshi's pocket. Is there a price for that? 5%? 10%? Taxing the tax savings? We know Tony gives his end of Junior's beneficence back to Hesh, but it, it's a fair question. Back at home, Tony has another dream slash fantasy about Dr. Melfi. It's offered to get us asking, where's this going? How's this going to play out? There's almost an NFL-like offensive scheme to it. It's got us thinking one thing, getting us looking one way, but then boom, RPO goal line fade, and there's your ball game. The irony of Carmela feeling like chattel only to have her awaken where her default response is offering up sex like George Michael. 
Then the twist of him not wanting sex from Carmela, but rather Irina. It's not you. It's me. Yeah, no shit. Only that first he wants to dress her up like a mini Melfi, which doesn't fly. Go to your cough. Yeah, go to your cough. It's not just a throwaway line. It's a tell that she's not afraid of Tony. And she doesn't take shit from anyone. Could probably take out a couple or three Chechen rebels single-handed too, if it ever came to that. Naturally, back to Melfi, complaining about the other women in his life, but blaming Carmela for the burn to his arm, the one caused by Irina. Why didn't he come clean about his mistress to her right here? Obviously, he's trying to preserve a level of respect, increase his odds of winning her over. But she kind of already knows, right? Highly doubtful she believes Carmela would actually do something like that, putting two and two together, all that. Something's off. Something is very off. He makes his move. He's got to get some action somewhere. Might as well shoot your shot. What are the stats for moments like these? How often or not does stuff like this even happen? Let's get it added to a census survey already. It's much more important and certainly interesting than how many people live in your household. I'm serious. She offers to talk about it later. That's interesting. Why the urgency? Even though they settle on next session, she was willing to same day that shit. The acuteness of that is a storyline unto itself. If he came back, would he perceive that as an invitation of some kind? Would she relent, have a momentary lapse? It's all there. Later that night at home, she's reading T.C. Boyle's Riven Rock when she hears an unusual noise outside. Riven Rock is about a fictional sanitarium in California, by the way. It's a book that explores the consequences of unrelenting ambition. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. The next day we see her car, a Jag no less, has been magically repaired. Even the Sikh mechanic can't put the screws on her. The repair work was too obvious. This, by the way, a far cry from the repair work done to AJ's teacher's car. An approximate replica of it anyway. Notice how she mentions the deli, neatly closing the loop on McKazian's intel on her. Next up is the payoff of Junior learning about his tailor's grandson. Mikey and his muscle tossed the drug dealer over the same bridge the kid did a header off of. Great establishing shot of Great Falls Park and Patterson, spot we also saw in the pilot and will no doubt see again and again. Where's Adam Driver? Mikey pays off a couple witnesses. What are the options for witnesses of situations like this, practically speaking? You know, is there a real-world worst-case scenario field guide-style treaties for situations like this? Let's engage in a bit of a public service here and make one. You know, for anyone out there now or in the future who might be under duress for merely existing at the wrong place 
at the wrong time. How to handle being a witness to a crime perpetrated by OC. Step one. While it's considered a civic duty to report crimes to law enforcement, probably best to do it anonymously. Personal safety first, as retaliation probably won't end well. Disappearing witnesses and all that. Step two, don't accept bribes. Doing so could implicate you in the underlying crime and compromise your legal standing. Step three, lawyer up. You don't know what you don't know. And step four, get off the reservation. Fucking off the reservation, cocksucker. Make like Pontecorvo, only make it. Oh! Now, with respect to the situation at hand, these bystanders didn't get our memo, so it's too late to turn back now. But was the cash good enough? Should Mikey have snapped some pre-cell phone era pics or something? Taken their IDs? Found out where their mothers live? I'm being completely serious. Was he thorough enough such that this incident won't come back to bite him? Get back to Junior. There were three witnesses. What about the other two guys? They going to see any of that money? All I'm saying is a lot of confidence, a lot of balls doing something like that in broad daylight. And the writing of that translates to guys around the neighborhood know who the fuck these guys are. That this wasn't random, but rather part of a well-oiled, organized machinery. But, and this is a big but, by not tying up all the loose ends, the writing is leaving open the possibility that it could become a thing down the line. Like airplane tickets, for example. The possibility that anything you say or do can be used against you in a court of law at some point in the future. Next up, the Altieri crew drops in to complain about Junior. We learn the dealer was one of Beresi's best earners. Jimmy wants his name to mean something when it's dropped. Where's the respect, he wonders. Rodney Dangerfield over here. Boy, that's the story of my life. No respect. No respect. No respect at all. They collectively want Tony to talk to Junior reason with his uncle, the way nephews purportedly can. His favorite nephew. Tony's instrument of choice, his mother. He mentions a reading lamp of hers that's down in the basement that he could bring it. A breadcrumb for an entire plot line in season three, episode one, Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. This scene is about Tony's mission to get Livia to do his dirty work, getting derailed by Livia's pet peeves and general neighborly distractions. She runs the water all day. Water, water, water. I'm, I'm living next door to Gunga Din. This idea of going through other channels to achieve your ends, intermediaries generally. As with anything, there's advantages and disadvantages. Generally speaking, intermediaries aren't emotionally invested in the matter at hand. Not necessarily so here. Generally speaking, intermediaries dampen the intensity of conflicts, serving as a buffer. Again, 
not necessarily so here. Generally speaking, intermediaries are skilled at effective, clear communication. Again, not so here. Livia is all about the subterfuge and obfuscation. This is just another example of Chase's subversion of traditional themes and concepts. Generally speaking, intermediaries act with the intention of preserving relationships. Surprise, surprise, not so here. Livia would blow the whole thing up if she could. And finally, generally speaking, intermediaries preserve confidentiality. Not only does Livia not preserve confidentiality, but she spends it like it's currency. From Mother Livia to Mother Mary, Carmela confides in Father Phil inside his church. She wants to leave Tony because he might be having an affair with Melfi. She distinguishes Melfi from the standard fair gumars in that she believed she was better than all the others. She acknowledges Melfi's formidableness, and she's intimidated by it. Her line in white caps has a lot of context behind it. What does she have that I don't have? In this instance, probably for the first time for Carmela too, she feels like someone else checks more boxes. The crux of this scene, though, is Father Phil's tune change contrasted with when he slept over at her house. He directly assigns blame to her in all of this, in a house of God, no less. You're not without sin in this, Carmela. Judge not that ye be not judged. On that note, Tony professes his love for Melfi. He lays it on thick, too. Sweet sounding. Like a mandolin. She chalks it up to being a byproduct of progress. Absolutely love the way she delivers that. Wishes to continue their work regardless. Real pro-execution. Tony and Uncle June have a powwow at a Little League game. In between comparing Tony's batting average to his swiping right average or sliding into DM's average, Tony likens Junior to Augustus Caesar at least to the extent he wants to have a long and prosperous reign. Augustus, of course, distinguished himself from the other Caesars in many ways, the first of which was founding the Roman Empire as we know it today. He also indirectly gave this episode its title, as he was the principal architect of the Pax Romana, a period of relative peace and stability that last for a couple hundred years. He's also credited with instituting the notion of the peaceful transfer of power, something that has been foundational to the United States most of the time. A word on Junior asking Tony if he's okay. It's obviously not accidental, but it's also not obvious either. I think Junior's sizing him up to get a read on whether the house is in order underneath him that there's no mutiny. And peeling back the psychological curtain even more, whether there's a tell that Tony senses something about Livia and Junior's burgeoning conspiracy against him. Whatever Tony did worked. 
On the next episode of Hesh's Horses, Tony tells Hesh, Junior distributed the 250 he got across the top guys. Love how Hesh gets Tony's 50K share by simply making expressions, no words. Junior'd probably call it a desert move by a desert person. I call it the kind of facile that comes with experience. There's the comparison to Augustus and now to Truman, who once famously said, you can accomplish anything in life, provided you do not mind who gets the credit. He also said, on the job of president, I sit here all day trying to persuade people to do the things they ought to have sense enough to do without my persuading them. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? Wrapping up, Tony and Carmela's poolside reconciliation. Come, you're not just in my life. You're my life. Never lasts long, as in the regularness of life, the ebb to the flow. But these moments are why we watch, why we get up for stuff like this. Stories about real people navigating everyday life. We end on the FBI-rigged shindig Junior was getting fitted for. Show, don't tell, as always. We know based on the movement of the camera on server John. And if you're anything like me, you always check underneath anyone's name tag now, either at a restaurant or at a place of business. The show as teacher of life. How'd John get that gig, by the way? You directly undercover for the feds, or did they contract this out to Sodexo? Whatever the case, what a way to go out. The sweet with the sour. You can't talk about one without the other. Junior's coronation, eclipsed by the feds' inside job. Homing in, inch by inch, on that thing of theirs. And adroit insertion of a tension ratchet right in the middle of a season, demonstrating firm command of where they're taking this thing. Steering their ship, not the best way they know, but simply the best way, period. That generations of us coming up, taking big swings at creative endeavors, can only hope to approximate. That's all I got. Thanks for listening and watching. See you next time.